Alright, so our place in the book of Romans, we've gone through the fact that the first three chapters of Romans really focused upon the fact that man is inexcusable before God. So that everybody has no excuse because God has caused it to be plain, to be clear that God is righteous as a judge and also that we are all breakers of his law that we violate even our own consciences, that we one day choose A and the next day choose non-A, that we one day affirm a thing and then we don't do it. The next day we condemn a thing and then we find ourselves doing it. The thing we praise in somebody else, we don't do it. The thing we condemn in someone else, we do it the next week. So our lives are a record of contradiction and that judges ourselves. So there is this record of offenses that we have And so what we're told in the thesis of the book of Romans is Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greeks. That's for the covenant people, the church of God that was in a small nation and also for every other nation. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In other words, life comes by faith and not by law-keeping. And so in this life of faith, there is this revealing of the righteousness of God. We see, with the gospel, we, we see the righteousness of God as judge. And then we see in chapters 3 to 5 in the book of Romans, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That the way we have a righteous standing before God is by the external righteousness of Christ that's given to us as a covering. Not by something in us, not even by the work of the Holy Spirit coming out of us. We're not judged righteous by Holy Spirit worked good works. It's not, hey, because you have faith, you're righteous. It's the faith you have as a gift from the Holy Spirit connects you to the merits of Jesus Christ. Chapters 6 through 8 talk about how being given the gift of saving faith, that saving faith will grow and endure. It will more and more displace the darkness in your own mind. God will, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of the word and the reading of the word, he will cause the darkness to be displaced and he will make it so that you grow in sanctification. So the righteousness of God given in sanctification, in our progressive transformation after the image of Christ, that righteousness is made more and more clear. Chapter 9 talked about the righteousness of God in predestining all things. There are challenges that come when you think about God controlling all things. Does God cause evil? If God causes evil, if he causes me to do evil, how can I be accountable? And the answer is that God sets the standard And he holds you accountable for it. He is not being judged by you as though there's some standard over him. He is the standard. And so, by what standard should we judge God? He has told us that he is good. He is the definition of goodness. And so, his predestining of all things, including the most evil thing in history, the murder of the God-man, was for the purpose of showing his own glory. And so God is shown to be righteous in his judgments. And we get into chapters 10 and 11, 
and we consider the fact that God has dealt with Israel in a way where judgment comes on Israel. So the question is, is God just? Is there the, how is there righteousness on God's part in dealing with Israel and with other nations when we consider the fact that Israel, on a relative sense, is better than the other nations? And so God shows that he hasn't broken his promises and that he has always intended to save his elect and that there's a visible church and an invisible church. There's, there's the people who are visibly his people, and then there's those who invisibly have faith. And then in chapter 12, we get to the transition point of the book, where we go from focusing upon all those arguments about the justice of God, the righteousness of God, and we get into the practical application section, chapters 12 through 16, and that focuses on the righteousness of God displayed in a rational service by the saints. As we live our lives as an acceptable sacrifice to God by doing what we can prove from his word. And so this is that hinge thesis. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, this is chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, that means it's devoted to God, acceptable to God, which means it's what God has approved. He shows us how we're to live as a sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. This is, we, we provide this service. It's the only reasonable response to the gospel that's been laid out. And it's also a service that involves our minds. It's a by faith. It's a service that involves our thought. It's not thoughtless. And do not be conformed to this world. We don't take on the forms that we see from the world that we receive from from other humans that are made up, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We are supposed to be transformed after the image of Christ, to be renewed in the mind by the word of God. And when we have that, we can prove what's good. We can prove what's acceptable to God. We can prove what is the perfect will of God. The the perfect will of God here, this is talking about the perfection of God's law. God's law is not insufficient. It doesn't fail to reveal some of the good works. God didn't say, here are my commandments. Also, there's other good works. Have fun figuring those out. Right? The law of God gives to us a perfect revelation of what he has commanded. A perfect revelation of what is good. It's perfect in the sense of complete. There's nothing missing. And so if we seek to apply the law of God, we're going to find all the things that are good works given to us there. Now, chapters 14 through the middle of 15, which is the part we're concluding out on, deals with the dispute between the Jewish Christians coming out of having been raised with the Mosaic law and the Gentile Christians coming in. And so one of the major points of dispute was the kosher laws for food and the way in which the Jewish believers, their consciences were bothered. Kind of like Peter. You remember Peter in the book of Acts? The Lord Jesus Christ comes to him in a vision and says, Peter, kill and eat. And he goes, no, Lord, which is a great moment of comedy, right? Think about this. No, you whom I acknowledge have all authority to tell me what to do. What's the objection exactly? No, you, I can't do this thing. It's not lawful, lawgiver. 
And so the Lord Jesus Christ points out to him, no, I'm, I would like you to do this. He doesn't say please. And then Peter follows suit, and he goes and he eats pig. Now, in response to that, Peter is charged by other Jewish Christians as breaking the law of Moses. And he explains, this is revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ, that that ceremonial law was no longer binding, and in fact, it would be sin to impose it on the Gentiles. That leads into this dispute that goes throughout later into Acts, into chapter 15, and there's the laying out of which ceremonial laws continue to abide. And it's only those that applied both to Jews and Gentiles before in the Old Covenant. Now, the other thing that comes up is days. What about days? And should we treat every day alike, or should we esteem one day above another? And the issue there, we're not talking about Saturnalia. We're not talking about invented pagan days. This isn't pagan Christians coming in saying, you know, my favorite thing is when we worship Mars by sacrificing a human in front of the temple to Mars after a victory. You know, the Roman triumphs, these. Those are my favorite uses of holy sacred time. You know, that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying, well, you know, each is his own and human sacrifice in front of the temple of Mars, that's, you know, just be convicted in your own mind which, uh, which holy days to keep. This is not about the invented holy days. The issue here that's being talked about is there are old covenant holy days. There are old covenant holy days. A Sabbath every week, a new moon every month, and we have the seven feast days. One of them is not a feast day, it's a fast day, Yom Kippur. So we have these holy days in the old covenant. Those days were lawful to be kept in the time after Christ died and he was even raised and even ascended until the destruction of the temple. The book of Hebrews says that those things were passing away. Well, they have passed away now. And so during the time of the book of Acts, for example, you see Paul doing Old Testament ceremonies. But those things have passed away now. And so there was a time where these Old Covenant ceremonies were lawful. And now, in the New Covenant, being past the destruction of the temple, those things having passed away, not only during that time was it unlawful to impose those days on Gentiles, but now it would be unlawful for anyone to keep them. Because it would be a claim that the days of Messiah have not been completed. So what's being talked about here is days that were instituted by God and there was a period of time where it was not obligatory, where it was not obligatory to keep them, but they were permitted. And now it's not permitted. And so we look at the one day out of seven, the weekly Sabbath and the fourth commandment. And I I gave a sermon a few weeks ago laying out all of the texts associated with that and showing the transition of the day. So I encourage you to check that out if you're you're interested in that, trying to see those arguments laid out more. Today we're assuming the continuing obligation there. That's the work from before. And today we're we're dealing with the continuation of it as assumed. But the idea here is that the last day of the week Sabbath is ended. And instead, a first day of the week Sabbath has been instituted. And we can see that, for example, in 1 Corinthians, where there's the commandment that money that was laid aside to help out the church in Jerusalem should be given 
on the first day where there's an assembly. There's this assumption that, that there's an assembly going on. So we have the, the proof from 1 Corinthians that there is a meeting of the church on the first day of the week. It's called the Lord's Day in the book of Revelation by John. And there's a prophecy about this in the Psalms. And that prophecy is that the day of the Lord is the day that Christ is resurrected. And the day of the Lord, the Lord's Day, is the day that God appointed. And so on that day, we have the Lord's Day. We have this change of the Old Testament Sabbath to the New Testament Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. So what's not being said when we say, when the scriptures say, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. What's not being said is, the fourth commandment is not a big deal, don't worry about it, don't seek to apply it, don't try to keep the Sabbath, don't meet for the Lord's day. That's not what's being said. That turns the scripture into mush, and if we apply that to any other moral law, then it's, you know, one person likes to murder, another person doesn't like to murder, let each one be convicted in his own heart. That is not the teaching of Scripture. What's being dealt with here is a thing that was instituted by God in the Old Covenant and was in the process of passing away. So, this does not allow us to ignore the Lord's Day. This does not now allow us to keep the days that God appointed for the Old Covenant. And it does not allow us to invent human holy days. So, we'll be continuing now in the application of the Fourth Commandment. But what I want to do is, you'll notice... If you have the digital formulators, the title that I gave was Sabbath and Abounding in Hope. So, verse 13, chapter 15, verse 13, is where that comes from. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Sabbath, when it was given, was given by God when he completed work as a day of rest, that was at the end of his work. You see, he created in six days and he rests on the seventh. And so that day of rest was a day at the completion of work. The Lord's Day changes to the first day of the week because we come from a position of rest now. Because Christ has completed the work of redemption. He has paid for all of our sins. We stand in a position of righteousness and we go into the week not trying to work for our salvation, not waiting for Christ, looking forward to that rest in Christ in the future, but instead, from a position of rest now, we work out of gratitude, seeking to do what God has commanded. And so that position of rest and working out of gratitude is how we proceed. And the Lord's Day is a marker of the hope that the work of dominion and the work of discipleship will be accomplished. One of the things that you see in chapter 15 of Romans with all the verses that are laid out there is all these promised verses that we went through these. We went through the exegesis of this text. We went through them and we saw that these are all these verses that say, hey, the Gentiles, the nations, are going to worship the God of the Bible. And so this promise of the nations being brought in, that's the work that we're looking forward to and saying that's going to be accomplished. We rest in Christ. We look to the fact that the redemption has been accomplished. It's being applied by the work of the Holy Spirit to individuals. 
and it's being applied by degrees throughout the world as households, churches, and states are being established and brought into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the work that we have hope in, and we look forward. And when we rest on the Sabbath, it's a statement that we don't have to frantically chase around these things as though we were able to accomplish it in our own power. This is a day of rest. We rest from the ordinary dominion work so that we can take in the feast of the word of God. And in doing that, we say the Lord is sovereign, the word of God goes forth, the work is being accomplished, and we can have the luxury of having one day in seven be a day of leisure like we were dukes. We sit around and we don't have to work on this day because of the great wealth that the Lord has stored up for us. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and we get to have today as a feast day because we are not so poor that we have to work every day out of the seven. We have one as a day of leisure, a day to take in the word of God, to be like princes that have the enjoyment of the blessing of our position of leisure. So the doctrine of the fourth commandment This is on page four of the digital handout. The doctrine of the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment is a commandment to use the means that God has appointed to know and acknowledge God with the right attitude of integrity, not hypocrisy, at the times that God has appointed in his holy word. We do not invent holy time. So what we see here is I've, I've put in the first, second, and third commandments here to show you the connection And so the holy time, the Sabbath day, is about growing in the knowledge of God. That's the first commandment. It's about worshiping God in the way he's appointed, using the stuff he's given, which is how we grow in the knowledge of him. And it's about using those with the right attitude, not in vain, but instead usefully. And so then the time is for that. That's what the time is for. So one day in seven. The first day of the week in the New Covenant is to be used exclusively for the functioning of the church and the worship of God. Now, there's exceptions to that. There's some extra things we have to do besides just worshiping and besides the functioning of the church itself. The exceptions are given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. The exception is necessary duties. Now, Eating breakfast is not an act of worship in the sense of something you're supposed to do in devoted time to God. But it's a necessary duty. The idea of eating your ordinary meals is part of the daily work that's to be done. And so the Lord Jesus Christ gave us the example as he was walking through a field on the Sabbath day with his disciples. They plucked grains for their immediate consumption. And the the response of the Pharisees was, what is this? You're breaking the Sabbath. And so the Lord Jesus Christ showed that, look, there are times when you do things that aren't the explicit purpose of that holy day during that holy day. You can take holy things and use them for necessary means. He gave the example. David, when he was running away from Saul, King Saul was trying to murder David. David passes through. He sees the tabernacle with the showbread. There's bread there that was not supposed to be by, eaten by anybody except for the priests. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, David ate that showbread. He ate it because it was necessary for him to have sustenance to eat this holy stuff outside of the prescribed use. 
eating on the Sabbath day, even plucking grains for your immediate consumption, would be the same sort of thing. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ says. What is he doing? Jesus is not saying, silly Pharisees, God didn't mean the fourth commandment. Right? That's not the response. The way that most evangelicals read that text is, you see, Jesus is telling the Pharisees that the Sabbath is silly. And they're concerned about the Sabbath is silly. Silly Pharisees. Right? The issue with the, the Pharisees, the reason the Pharisees are silly, is because they make man for the Sabbath. And not Sabbath for man. Right? The Sabbath is for the purpose of man growing in the knowledge of God. Which means if you're so hungry that you can't focus, you should eat. You should do the work of preparing a meal. You could even pluck the food and prepare it and eat it. And so the idea that works of necessity are an exception. There's also the works of mercy. Jesus heals. The Sabbaths go, or the, the, the Pharisees go, you, you heal on the Sabbath. He goes, look, if you had a donkey stuck in a hole, you'd pull him out on the Sabbath. This is a man. Which is a greater value? And so this idea that there are works of mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ is not saying the Sabbath shouldn't be used for worship. I'm showing you by absurd examples that the Sabbath is absurd. Never keep the Sabbath. Don't worry about the Sabbath. He is saying, here's an exception. This was embedded in the law from the beginning. So the works of necessity and the works of mercy were embedded in the law from the beginning. And we understand this with other laws. We understand, for example, that the commandment to not kill has exceptions of self-defense, lawful punishment, just warfare. The Bible's got obvious, clear teaching on all that. So when we look at things, the Bible gives general principles that are easy to remember, and then as you grow in understanding, your job is to learn the exceptions. When you teach a three-year-old a house rule, do you give them all of the exceptions? And we think we're so much better than three-year-olds. But the Lord gives to us these general principles, and then we go, but what about... And he goes, yeah, I, I, I provided that. That's in the book. Have you read the book? I wrote a book. <laughs> so this duty to look at the whole of Scripture and define the way that we piece things together. And so, thankfully, the Lord has preserved his church, and in the ordering of the church, what he's given to us is this work of organizing, systematizing the word of God. So we should use the means that God has appointed to grow in the knowledge of him. And when we know God, we possess God. We possess God by knowing him. We should seek to grow in the knowledge of God and to share the knowledge of God. That's the first commandment. By the means that God has appointed, that's the second commandment. With integrity instead of hypocrisy, that's the third commandment. We have many good works that we're required to do. And the way we know the relative proportion of time to use for each type of good work is established by the fourth commandment. And the other texts that show us the use of time for worship. We have six days to do our ordinary work. That's the proportion. Six days out of seven. And one is to be set aside for the worship of God exclusively. We're to worship God every day in the morning and in the evening. That's a pattern you see throughout the scriptures. And we are to use six days to glorify God in our ordinary dominion work and the enjoyment of blessings in recreation. 
But one day in seven is appointed to be a holy resting from all our ordinary work and recreation so that we can keep the day under the Lord as a holy work of worship. Inventing holy days is like inventing an element of worship. It is idolatry. So, I want to show you that I'm not the first person to ever think about this. The Westminster Assembly, which was a set of godly reformed men, wrote a directory of worship. And in that, you look at page 5, it says, There is no day commanded in Scripture to be kept holy under the gospel, but the Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath. Festival days, vulgarly called holy days, having no warrant in the word of God, are not to be continued. Notice the argument. Having no warrant in the word of God. This assumes the principle that God's word is sufficient. This assumes that when God gives us his law, he did not leave out things that were necessary for our good. And so if that's the case, if God, the omniscient mind, the all-wise God, the eternal God, knowing all things from the beginning, if he did not give us some ordinance, it is because we did not need it. And so, if we focus on the things that he has appointed, if we use the things he's given, we're going to have a rightly ordered life. There are lots of things we can spend our time and attention on. And the word of God, the law of God, tells us the things to give our attention to. It gives us the categories to think in and to give our attention to. And holy days invented by men have no warrant in the word of God. And they should not be continued. Now, then this talks about the idea of special occasions for thanksgiving or fasting. And so, there's no set times for fasting and no set times for thanksgiving in God's word for the new covenant. Instead, when some big disaster is imminent and you want God to save you from it, you fast. If there's some big thing that happened, you give thanks. And so you're responding in time to the actual work of providence in time. That's the idea there. It's this public training for the things that occur. So the larger catechism has pulled together the things on the fourth commandment. So look at the bottom of page four, or sorry, page five. The first thing it does is it quotes the commandment. Right? Which is the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment is, and now this is the scripture, right? It's quoting the scripture right here. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, the Sabbath, you shall not do any work. And notice it's not just you. This is something you have an obligation to apply your authority to. In it, you shall not do any work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, then it goes to male employees and female employees. Where are all those other genders through? Well, it's not there because the Word of God teaches us that there are two genders. Over and over again, it's embedded in the, the Word. <coughs> nor your cattle, nor your stranger that is within your gates. Well, what if I have non-Christian employees that are foreign? Foreign, not Christian? I mean, right? I mean, I can pay them to work, right? No. Strangers that are within your gates. You should not hire them to work. Why? Because in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. 
and rested the seventh day. But he gave us an example. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Right? Because he gave us that example, he then pronounced a blessing on it. Do this and it will yield you blessing. And he hallowed it. He said, this is holy to me. Don't use it for other things. This is holy to me. Don't use it for other things. And you have the obligation, if you're in authority, to apply that under your authority. So this comes from Exodus 20. With the other Ten Commandments. So now, what's required? This commandment's given. What does it mean? What are the positive duties we have? 116. This is page 6. The fourth commandment requires of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such set times as he has appointed in his word, expressly one whole day and seven, which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, right? So the old covenant, it was the end of the week. And the first day of the week ever since. The new covenant, the Sabbath is the first day of the week. The Lord's day. And so to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath, and in the New Testament, called the Lord's Day. Now, what does it mean that we should sanctify or keep holy to God the times that he's appointed? But sanctifying is just a Latin root, sanctus, which means holy. Okay? To sanctify is to holify, make holy. Okay, so you spend the time like it's holy. What does holy mean? It's set apart. It's for a specific purpose. If you have a tool in the temple, for example, in the Old Testament, right? That temple was holy, and that means you didn't take the fork that was used to collect the, the sacrifices out of the fire, right, in the sacrifice. You didn't take that and then go eat broccoli with it, right? It had a specific use. Its specific use was a tool for the worship and sacrifice, and that's it. You didn't use it for anything else. The Lord's Day is holy for the worship of God. That's it. You don't use it for anything else. You can eat broccoli. That's a work of necessity on the Lord's Day. So we keep it holy. We set it aside for the specific use. Now, we look for what God has appointed in His Word. In the Old Covenant, there were the festivals and the fasts. There's the new moons. There's the Sabbath at the end of the week. And there was morning and evening worship. What we see in the New Covenant era, we see a continuation of a weekly Sabbath, but it's a change of the day, and you have morning and evening worship. That is embedded in the Fourth Commandment and in the structure of reality. This idea of morning and evening is embedded in the structure of reality. And the idea of the week, that one's not so easy to see. What about nature as the week? Do we see the week in the sun? like the earth go around the sun every week? Or maybe, does the moon go around the earth every week? No, that's, is there some pattern in the stars that we can see weekly? No. The week is something that God imposes without anything that we would pick up. He just says, you know why seven days? Because I said so. And that's the proportion of time that he's given now, that proportion of time, the one in seven days for his worship and the six days, the six days for work, that makes it so that we have a lot of time to accomplish our other work. And perhaps the thing that's not as easily visible 
is that that's about how much productivity we need to accomplish the dominion work he's given to us in the time frame of history that he wants. And so this is, he's determined there's an efficient ratio for our knowledge, and that's what he's set up. And so we have the day, morning and evening worship, and we have the weekly worship. One day and seven. And so we know, embedded in this, originally the Sabbath was given as a remembrance of creation, and now the Sabbath is given as a remembrance of redemption. And these two great works are an abridgment of religion. God is our creator, and God is our redeemer. And the Sabbath reminds us of both. And it reminds us that we have hope for the completion of the work. Now, 117, how is the Sabbath for the Lord's day to be sanctified? So now this explanation, what does this making it holy mean? Well, the Sabbath of the Lord's day is to be sanctified by a holy resting all the day, not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful. It's the stuff that's lawful, it's good works at other times. They are excluded from what we're supposed to focus our time on, on the Lord's day. And making it our delight to spend the whole time, except so much as it's to be taken up in works of necessity and mercy, in the public and private exercises of God's worship. And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. Now that's an elegant but dense way of communicating that information. So let's break it down a little bit. The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting. Remember holy, it's it's set apart. The idea of resting, this isn't just resting. We're not sitting in a catatonic state on the bed on the Sabbath. right? We're not going, I have to avoid all the activity. I need to preserve every calorie of energy I can. This resting is not a resting that's idle. It's not a resting to relax. It's resting from one thing to do another. If you have leg day, you're resting from arm day right? in a workout. That's because you're not working out. It's because you're resting from one in order to do the other. That's what's happening here. The idea is we rest from one kind of good work to give focus to a different kind of good work. Now, works that are good works aren't sinful. But they can become sinful when they're done at time that God says, do this other thing. Think about this. If you had a boss at work, and that boss said, normally I want you to take care of task A, but right now I want you to stop doing task A so you can do task B. And he walks over and he finds you. You're doing task A. He goes, you disobey me. Why aren't you doing what I told you to do? And you go, well, I'm doing this thing that you said was a part of my job. And so why aren't you happy? The boss goes, because I said stop and start doing B instead. That's what God commands for the Sabbath. He says, this day is for specific work. Page 7. The Lord's Day to be sanctified in making it our delight. This is not a burdensome thing. This is the feast of the Word of God. We're to make it our delight in spending the whole time in the worship of God, except when we have to do works of necessity and mercy. Now, sometimes people are looking for excuses to say, Can I call this mercy? Can I make this thing necessary? 
The goal needs to be, look, what do I have to do to not sin? Right? What, what, what necessary duties get in my way that if I didn't do them, I'd have to say to the Lord Jesus, you'd have to go, it was sin when I didn't do that thing and instead went to worship you. Right? That's, that's the kind of thing you're looking to do on the Lord's Day. And so the stuff that you needed to do because of the ordinary course of duty in order to avoid sinning. And then works of mercy that help other people to be able to keep the Lord's Day. Somebody's sitting there in pain and you go, I'm not going to help you with this medical thing because it's the Lord's Day. They're going to sit there and they're not going to be able to very effectively deal with the Lord's Day. You're leaving them in their place of uselessness for the Lord's Day. The idea is you heal them, you bless them, you do mercy to them, and it sets them up in a position where they are better able to keep the Lord's Day. So these works of mercy reinforce our profession of faith to others, and they help other people to be able to enjoy the Sabbath and call it a delight. Now, in order to do this, we should prepare our hearts ahead of time. In other words, one of the things daily worship morning and evening worship, this idea of private worship in families, the idea of private worship of individuals, that worship prepares you. It orders your heart. It organizes your thoughts and makes it so that you are better prepared to be able to deal with the Sabbath. And when we do our other work in a timely manner and organize it to avoid having to work on the Sabbath, that makes it so that we're free and fit for the duties of the day. So 118. Oh, and I, one last thing. The, the idea of, of the day before the Sabbath being a day of preparation, you can see this throughout the scriptures. And I, I have quoted there um, on page 7, you can see Luke 23. talks about a day of preparation. And talks about the idea that even dressing the Lord's body, preparing the Lord's body for his funeral, for his tomb, was something that they thought was not necessary to be done on the Sabbath. So they, they stopped that work. Go keep the Sabbath and come back and finish that after the Sabbath is over. That gives you a sense of the seriousness of the women that followed Jesus and how they cared about the Sabbath. Now, 118, why is the charge of keeping the Sabbath more especially directed to governors of families and other superiors? So, fathers, husbands, mothers, wives, you have special responsibility. Masters of business, managers, magistrates, officers, non-commissioned officers. These people have special responsibility. They are charged with keeping the Sabbath for themselves, but also making sure the people under their authority keep the Sabbath. And that means requiring compliance from people under your authority, rewarding the obedience, disciplining or punishing the disobedience of those under your authority for breaking the Sabbath. And there's a danger for people who are in authority that they profane the Sabbath by giving work or assignments to people under their authority. That's why this, this, this command is specially focused upon people in authority. Because it's your job, if you have authority, to be careful to order the time for people who are under your authority and prevent it from being a thing that would disrupt the Sabbath. 119. What are the sins forbidden in the fourth commandment? So now here's the negative side. So we had, what are the positive duties? What's the day for? What are we supposed to use the Lord's Day to do? And now we're told, 
Okay, here's what you don't do. Now, here's what happens often in discussions about the Sabbath. Am I allowed to do such and such? Can I do that? May I do this? The thing to remember is what's the goal? The goal is to grow in the knowledge of God and to spend the time in the worship of God. And so the don't list is not the don't list for itself. It's the don't list to make it so that you can do the do list. So what we have to think about in terms of this negative element is the negative element is to allow for the goal of using the day for the worship of God. So the sins forbidden in the fourth commandment are all omission of the duties required. So all the stuff we're commanded positively to do, if we fail to do it, we're doing what's forbidden. All careless, negligent, and unprofitable performing of them. Or being weary of them. So if instead of calling the Sabbath a delight, we call it a drudgery. If instead of paying attention to the word of God preached or read, we instead kind of think off into something else. Those would be failing to use the time in the way that God has commanded. It'd be sort of like if you were eating at a table, and while trying to get the fork into your mouth, you kind of missed dropped it over your shoulder. That's what the negligent attending to the word would be like. So the sins that are forbidden in the fourth commandment are failing to use the positive things well. Also, being idle on the day. Not using the day for this worship of God. Or committing some other sin. Now, the other thing that's forbidden, point 16 there, at the bottom of page 8, all needless works about our worldly employments and recreation. All needless words about our worldly employment and recreations. And all needless thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations. Now, at that point you go, who can keep this? Yes, you've got it. Who can keep this? The Lord Jesus Christ kept it. He kept it perfectly. Nobody else has. What does this law do? Just like when the Lord Jesus Christ says, don't even look upon a woman to lust after her. Don't hate your brother in your heart. Right? The looking upon a woman to lust after her is a breaking of the seventh commandment. The looking upon your brother and hating him is a breaking of the sixth commandment. The thinking about your ordinary work and recreation on the Sabbath day is a breaking of the fourth commandment. The law of God reveals to us our sinfulness, and it reveals to us our need of a Savior. And so, like every commandment, the perfection and spirituality of this law shows us that we are breakers of it and shows us our need for Christ to pay for our sins. Page 9. Why does God give this to us? What are the reasons that are attached to this commandment to help us to understand why this is good for us and why this glorifies his name? The reasons annexed to the fourth commandment, the more to enforce it, are taken from the equity of it. So think about the equity, that word equity means sort of moderation, the moderation of it. Equity is often used to refer to justice or the value of your home above the debt that you have in it. 
that's not what's meant here. The equity of it here is the moderation of it. Think about how moderate this requirement is. How much time could God have said, hey, worship me this amount? If God had said, I want you to work one day and then worship me for a day, would that have been a thing that was within God's rights? If God just said, from the moment you're conceived to the moment you die, I want you to worship me and never do anything else, would that have been within his rights? Yes, it would. He is the potter and we are the clay. He has the right to do with us as he will. And what he's done is instead as he said, I'm giving you six days out of every seven to do with for your work and for your recreation. And I have one that I have a claim on in a special way. That's the generosity of God in giving to us all of that time. And so we have this moderation of it. God allows us six days of seven for our own affairs and reserves but one for himself in these words. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. Now, the other argument is from God's challenging a special propriety in that day. The propriety, a special property right, a special ownership of it. The seventh is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Next, from the example of God, who in six days made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. And from that blessing which God put upon that day, not only in sanctifying it to be a day for his service, but in ordaining it to be a means of blessing to us in our sanctifying it. When we keep it holy, we are honoring God, and we are obtaining blessing for ourselves. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So why is the word remember there? Okay, page 10. The word remember is there in the commandment because there's a benefit in remembering it. There's a benefit in preparing for it. There's a benefit in keeping it. And if we remember the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath, it helps us to better keep the rest of God's commandments because we have a day devoted to preparing ourselves, organizing our thoughts, growing in the knowledge of Him. Now, continuing the practice of the Sabbath, And remembering it throughout the week helps us to be thankful. To remember he created us, but also to remember that he has redeemed us. The Sabbath is a reminder of creation and redemption. The other thing is, we're commanded to remember it because we are ready to forget it. We are ready to forget it. And in that readiness to forget it, we have less about the ordinary structure of things in terms of the light of nature to remind us of it. And the other thing, the reason we need to remember it is because on the Sabbath day, something that's ordinarily good work becomes sin because you're not doing the stuff you're supposed to do. And so we don't have this habit of like, oh, that's sin. Right? So we have this, this way in which we have to start thinking about the time. So it restrains us in the things that are ordinarily good works. The other thing is it's not every day, so we're not reminding ourselves about it every single day. It's one in seven. So these are all reasons why there's a special command to remember it so we can prepare for it and so we can keep it holy. And here's another reason why God commands us to remember it. Satan works hard with many tools and much craftiness to obscure from our memories the Sabbath day and to take it away from the cultural institutions. We live in a time where the Supreme Court has made Sabbath laws unconstitutional. They used to be called blue laws. 
And now the idea is, oh, this is unconstitutional. Well, I'll tell you what, the Supreme Court from the very earliest days of the Republic had many, 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 many findings. They would say any contract that required a person to work on the Lord's Day was not binding in terms of its obligation to make a person work on the Lord's Day. This was not the view of the founders. This was, not the, this was not the view of people for generations after the founders. The Constitution itself says the president has a certain amount of time to sign a bill, and then it says excluding Sundays, because it was acknowledged that the president shouldn't have to think about legislation on the Sundays. He should instead be attending to worship. This is the way that the founders thought, and what we see here is a tendency in our modern culture to instead try to have a washing away of the Lord's Day. Now, what I have on the rest of the notes, I don't have time to go through, but I wanted to give to you chapter 21 of the Westminster Confession, and and I also gave to you a bunch of citations of scriptures that are used as the proof texts for all these questions and answers, and they are a delight and glory to look into. If you study them, you will see the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath laid out for you in a marvelous way, and you will see these propositions that have been laid out systematically here proved from the Word of God. And this chapter 21 lays out the elements of worship, and I put them in bold so you can see what are the things that we're supposed to really be doing on the Lord's Day. These are the positive things we should be looking for to do. So, what we have is an institution given to us by God in the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. The Sabbath is one day in seven to be used to worship God. There's a blessing of God upon it. And God has told us that this is his special property. It's the day of the Lord. And he has told us that we are to keep it holy and to not use it for something else. We are not wiser than God but our culture has largely rejected this. And even evangelical churches have turned the Ten Commandments into the Nine Commandments. What we are called to do as faithful Christians is to apply the law of God, not throwing away parts of it that we find inconvenient, and not adding to it. Which is why human-made holy days, like the Christ Mass, are not things appointed by God, are not given a blessing by God, And there's no special claim of property by God on those days. And instead, those days are to be used for something else. If you use the Lord's Day to do special Christmas traditions as opposed to worshiping God, who are you obeying? If you use an ordinary working day, six days shall you labor for special Christmas traditions, whose command are you keeping? The Lord has given to us an order of time. It's for our good. He knows our design better than we. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. And the seventh is holy to the Lord. There are comments, questions, or objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Mr. Cordova? Thank you for your attention, Elder Reese. My question is related to declared days of Thanksgiving and such as compared to uh, Christmas, and I think I know the answer, but uh, it is, would it be the difference of uh, setting us aside a day to give thanks to God, but not calling it a holy day or a day for worship, a call to worship, 
Is that a difference between that and the our, our witness as Christians to follow God's law and not uh, bring in something which secular society and false um, false churches have applied as a holy day? Is that is that the main, one of the main differences? So, I think your question was. Is the difference between a day of thanksgiving and a man-made holy day um, sort of the things to be done on the day? No, the, the, how, how we can declare days of thanksgiving, but then we don't, uh, but uh, another day of thanksgiving for uh, you know, Christ is, what was the, what's the line there? Yeah, so... In order for it to be not sin for the authority calling the day of thanksgiving and calling the day of thanksgiving, there has to be a particular thing that's happened in recent history that you're giving thanks for. And um, that, if you, you know, if it were a church calling that day of thanksgiving, you would call to a symbol for a public assembly for worship. Um, the state could call for a day of thanksgiving. And it shouldn't be turned into this perpetual day of remembrance where you have a repeated call for Thanksgiving. We can, without sending, I think, heed a call to give thanks, even if it's not, there's not some particular providence that we would think it's worthy to do. We could give thanks in general ways. So the, the day of Thanksgiving that we have in November regularly the federal government is sinfully calling it on a continuous appointed day, but I don't believe it's sinful for us to give thanks on that day or something to that effect. Um, the other days that have a, here's a day specifically for this doctrine, and it's a holy day for that doctrine, and we should observe it. It's not a general day of thanksgiving or a day of thanksgiving for a particular event in history. There's instead... Here's a holy day with this significance. That is the difference. Yeah, it's the, it's the calling, declaring a holy day. It's not declared by God. Yes, and it's not just a calling for giving thanks, and it's not just, uh, and it's not in response to a particular providence that's recent. Instead, it's, you know, Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, and here's a day that's holy for remembrance of God. Right. That God did not appoint that. God said, here's the Lord's Day. It's to be done every week, and it's a holy day to remember the resurrection of Christ. He gave us that. Right, absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Mr. Nye? Thanks for your teaching. Um, I wanted to just make sure that I understand, and for clarity's sake for, for all of us, that, that period of time between um, the resurrection of Christ and the the ending of Revelation and the destruction of the temple, that, that time where the ceremonial law could be kept. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was during that time period, it was okay for the Jews to keep that. But then there was a point in time where it was realized that Gentiles should not keep that. I, I believe that that's what Acts 21 is, is saying. And after, after the, the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15. So it was okay for Jews to keep those ceremonial laws, but not for, for Gentiles? Yeah, so there's a period of time where everybody everywhere was obligated to keep the old ceremonies. Yes. They were commanded to get circumcised and to come in, right? Mm -hmm. So that then 
when Christ is resurrected, that becomes a change where now it is still lawful to keep the Old Covenant ceremonies, um, but there's a time at which it becomes sin to require Gentiles to be circumcised. There's a time where it's even sin to allow them to become circumcised. And at some point between the, uh, the, the resurrection of Christ and Acts 15 with the council there, because people start to say Gentiles need to be circumcised to be saved, and then, okay, well, they just need to get circumcised because it's an obligation on everybody to keep the Mosaic ceremonies. And then, when the temple is destroyed, it's now not permissible for anybody to keep the Old Covenant ceremonies anymore. So, is that clear? Yes, I, I think so. So, um, so, from the resurrection of Christ up until that point, that, that, um, that, that Jerusalem Council, um, was it okay for the Gentiles to, or is that kind of like, I don't know the precise moment yeah. when it became sinful for Gentiles to uh, get circumcised mm-hmm. and to try to keep the Mosaic law for religious reasons. Um, but Paul had somebody get circumcised, and then he started to refuse to have people be circumcised. And Acts 15 and Acts 21 say that it's not permissible to do that. And so there's some point in time before the destruction of Jerusalem and after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ wherein it became not permissible for Gentiles to do those. And the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 is when Jews were no longer permitted to do the Old Covenant ceremonies. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Marsh. I have a uh, follow-up question um, for Mr. Nye's question about the practice of circumcision. So, based on what you're saying, it's seems to be the case then, correct me if I'm wrong, that if we're to um, honor God in understanding circumcision being replaced with baptism now, um, we baptize our children, then by circumcising them, are we possibly not, unless we truly believe that that's a something we should do for their health, which is a separate argument, connected but different argument. Um, are we not acting in faith by actually circumcising? So, sir, yeah. So now, so now in the new covenant era, after the destruction of Jerusalem, circumcising a male child for a religious reason is sin and is a testimony that the promised seed of the woman has not come. Doing circumcision for health reasons without religious significance is a matter of judgment based upon empiricism and is not communicated in the word of God and is a matter of judgment to be left to private individuals and families. Okay. Is that clear? Did I answer? Is there something you want clarification on? Uh, no. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. We ask that you would help us to honor the Lord's day.
We ask that you would help us to see the importance of keeping your worship as you have revealed pure and entire. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.